before I move on, are there any questions about uh, about last week's eyes material? We go ahead and assume that pretty much nobody looked at it because you're focusing on the stuff that's on the respiratory test. A fair assumption. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> so we'll start with cataracts. Um, so when I, uh, last week when I drew on the boards the components of the eye. Um, Right when the light comes in the eye, it comes in through the clear part in the front, the cornea, and the next thing that the light's going to hit after it goes through the anterior chamber is the lens. And the lens is supposed to be a clear, somewhat flexible uh, structure that will essentially bend, project those lights, uh, the light waves, uh, so that they'll land on the uh, on the, um, the nervous part of the of the eye, the retina. So obviously, based on how, what their what their job is, they're supposed to be transparent. So cataracts are when you start to get opacity, so clouding, uh, non-transparency of that lens. And as you can probably imagine, uh, just the same way you had, say, a pane of glass that were foggy or cloudy inside, the light can't travel through clearly, and it's not going to, the person's obviously not going to be able to get the same visual image that they would if that were clear as it should be. So cataracts can, of course, like many other things, uh, there will be a spectrum of how significant they can be. And in a lot of cases, uh, the typical cataracts, the age-related kind, it's the kind of thing where it starts off less significant and then it often will become more and more significant as time goes on. Um, that it can affect both eyes. It can affect them similarly, or it can affect them entirely differently. So you can have uh, you know, equal-ish ca cataracts in both eyes, or you can have one that's really bad and one that's not. So let's look at a picture so you see what I'm talking about. Okay, That would be uh, obviously a medically dilated, like a chemically dilated pupil, uh, so you can see well inside. And here, you should not normally see anything in there. Right? It should just be transparent. But here you have a, a big cataract where it's, that lens is very cloudy and opaque. Okay, so how does this happen? Well, um, it, can, it, can, it can happen acutely with trauma. So if you have tra uh, direct trauma to the eyes, uh, to the eye, it can occur that way. So that may be more, one of your better examples of where it develops unilaterally, uh, just to one eye. Um, the rest of them are often uh, bilateral. Um, people can, uh, sorry, uh, babies can be born with, uh, with cataracts congenitally. Does anybody know any associations with anything that can lead to congenital cataracts? There are, there's a, a handful, go ahead. Strep infection, sure, yeah, good. There's a few infections. Um, one of the more common ones is also uh, rubella. So rubella infection of the mother, uh, especially earlier on in fetal development, can lead to uh, coming out, baby coming out with, uh, with cataracts. Um, Down syndrome. Right, so can sometimes uh, present with cataracts as well. There's a handful of other genetic abnormalities that can, can lead to that. Now, the most, again, those are somewhat rarer cases. Um, the most common reason, the most common population that develops cataracts is not your young population, it's your older population because it, de it does tend to accumulate damage over time and get worse as people age. So it can be strictly age-related. So it's something that, you know, it happens, it develops as you get older. Um, the reality of that is it probably is related to um, exposure to stuff throughout your lifetime because there's, um, uh, there's a known association with excessive exposure to ultraviolet light and sunlight. So this is one of the reasons why you want to wear no polarized glasses outside, protect your eyes. This is one of the things that it can lead to if you're over the course of a lifetime chronically exposed to lots and lots of bright UV light. Um, 
there are some other things that can lead to this as well, some other conditions. Uh, it says on here, metabolic abnormalities. What kind of metabolic abnormality are we talking about? It's actually a condition that, uh, that we're going to talk about today. Diabetes. diabetes, exactly. Okay, So the longer uh, somebody has diabetes, the more likely they are to develop uh, cataracts. So that is a quote-unquote preventable cause of cataracts, as long as the diabetes is well-managed, which often it is not. Uh, one more thing, uh, kind of is well, something that we started to talk about in the respiratory system. It causes all sorts of problems, and I said you're going to see this over and over in other units. Nothing to do with the lungs. Smoking. Right? So smoking can lead to cataracts as well. Okay, <laughs> so uh, someone again, assuming it's not uh, congenital and it's not traumatic, um, the typical course uh, of cataract development is it gets worse and worse over time. So the person starts to get. Uh, blurrier vision. It usually messes with their night vision um, first, so it's, it's particularly challenging to, uh, to see at night. Um, and again, like I said, if it's in bilateral eyes, then it can, they can develop at approximately a similar pace, uh, you know, especially if it's, say, diabetes-related, or they can be, one can be significantly worse than the other. There's nothing necessarily to say they have to be at the same pace. Um, obviously, the, the way these develop is they get more and more opaque. You're going to have your vision impaired more and more, uh, and ultimately it will need to be corrected. So the correction is uh, surgery. It's an outpatient surgery. You've probably seen it if you've been in a hospital, right? People walking around with an eye patch and leaving the hospital. Uh, that's often this. Uh, so it's a, again, it's a, you go in. Uh, basically, the surgeon will take the lens out and replace it uh, with a synthetic lens. And, uh, and then you go home and you recover. And in a lot of cases, if it's bilateral, which quite often is, wait till you can see well out of that eye and then go back and get the other one done. Okay. Any questions about cataracts? Fairly straightforward. Again, surgically correctable for the most part. And that same surgery will be, will be done in, say, a young child if they're born with congenital cataracts. So it's usually, I believe, it's done around... 10 weeks or in that in that ballpark. It's fairly early. <clears throat> okay, next is detached retina. So <laughs> if you remember what the retina is, it's that innermost layer of the eyeball, right? The nervous layer where we have our, our photoreceptors, our rods and cones. Uh, if you remember the anatomy from the last week, it projects about two-thirds of the way forward towards the anterior, so it doesn't go all the way to the front of the eye. Uh, and that actually is relevant because the spot where This is the inside right, of the eye. Well, let's draw it all the way forward. Okay. That's the inside of the eye. This is the back. The retina will often kind of project like so. And like so. And that spot right there where it ends anteriorly is actually one of the vulnerable spots for, um, for having something like detached retina. So what does detached mean? What is it detached from? Well, a detachment means it's tearing away from the underlying layer. Now, who remembers what is in the underlying layer? What's in the middle layer of the eyeball? Blood vessels, exactly, right? It's the, it's the, the, uh, the, the vascular layer. So 
there, this is a problem, right? Because the retina is, uh, is living tissue, it's nervous tissue, and it requires a steady supply of, of fresh blood. And if it doesn't get that, then it can, it can die. So uh, detached retina is uh, an emergency situation where it is oftentimes uh, surgically correctable. You basically you go in and reattach the retina to the underlying vascular layer, and um, much of that loss can often be restored. But the catch is it has to be done really rapidly, okay? because the longer it goes on, the more likely there is of developing permanent uh, impairment due to the permanent death of those, of those uh, photoreceptor cells, photoreceptors. Okay. Um, now, the other tricky part to this is uh, there, there are no nociceptors in the retina. Well, it's nervous tissue. It's just photoreceptors. So there's no nociceptors, which means what does this feel like? It doesn't hurt, all right? Uh, so what the person does experience is visual loss, and it, it can be described in a few different ways. It can be described as kind of real, like, uh, visual disturbance, usually in part of their visual field. Uh, often it's just blackness. And so the part of the retina that's affected, it, it looks or it appears to the person like a curtain's fallen down over that part of their visual field. It just goes dark. Yeah, and unfortunately, some people will try to ride that out. It's like, well, maybe it'll get better. Because yeah. it doesn't hurt, so it can't be that bad. Right? But the problem is, again, uh, if it's surgically corrected rapidly, it can be fixed. If, it, if you delay that care, uh, then it can become permanent. Okay? Uh, and then the other tricky part is it can worsen. So a detached retina can begin as, say, a partial, you know, uh, you're, say, got blackness or lacking a, a part of the visual field, and it can get worse and worse and worse over time uh, because what happens is, and I said that it's, it's often the anterior attachment that's, that's the site of the, of the tear. Uh, and so what can happen here is as you get a tearing of the retina away from the underlying vascular layer, the vitreous humor, that jelly-like stuff that's filling that posterior chamber, can start to peel in between those layers and peel the, re the, the, um, the retina away from the vascular layer. So you get uh, more and more of it that's affected. Does that make sense? All right. Straightforward enough. Okay. No pain. Loss of, uh, loss of vision in the affected part of the visual field. Uh, surgical correction has to be done emergently. Questions? Okay. Next is macular degeneration. It's also often called AMD or age-related macular degeneration. This will probably tell you who your typical population is being affected by it is. It's your elderly population. Um, what is the macula? I say macular degeneration. There's something, the, the macula is degenerating. So what is the macula? You drew it out last week, or I drew it out. Okay. Let's go back to a picture here. Okay. So, right there. If you shoot a straight line straight in the eyeball, okay, mine's a little crooked here. So, a beam of light goes straight in through the cornea, straight into the lens, and goes right to the back of the eye. It's going to land on, again, excuse my shitty drawing this morning. Okay? So it won't hit, the optic nerve is offset here. What it's going to run straight into 
is that central region in the back of the eye. It's a dense part of the retina. Uh, it's heavily concentrated with what kind of photoreceptors? Cones, right? And it's called the macula densa. Okay? And then we said there's in the middle of the macula densa, there's a little pit, right? and that is called the fovea centralis. Again, those structures are heavily concentrated with cones, again, for sharpness, acuity, uh, and particularly for color vision. Okay? So, as the name suggests, so here, again, the fovea centralis, right, is that little pit in the center of the macula densa. So, see where the mouse is? That's the macula. So, as the name suggests, macular degeneration is degeneration of that macula. So, what, first of all, what would you expect that person to what would you expect to happen to their vision? Consider. Sure, but but you're and you're right. So you can shadowy blurriness sort of thing. But whereas, um, say somebody has a, a retinal detachment, it's often going to be say in one kind of part of their visual field that they that they lose, corresponding with what part of the retina is being has been damaged. What part of the visual field are you going to lose if you damage the macula? Central. Central, exactly. All right. So again, it's kind of depicted this way. So if this is what the person is seeing, that is something like what macular degeneration will present as. Because again, it's, it's degeneration of that central portion of their vision. Okay? So they still have some peripheral, uh, but everything that their eyes are looking straight at is going to be blurry right in the middle. Okay? So that's obviously a, a, that's a problem. Okay? And the further issue here is that it's really difficult to treat. We, we currently don't have any really good ways of managing this. But let me kind of qualify that. Um, there are two types of macular degeneration that both are going to cause impairment of the, of the, of the macula. 90% um, of the cases are what's called uh, dry AMD. Uh, and that basically means there's deposits of, uh, of, of stuff, chemicals, uh, and um, that overlay the macula and block light from getting at those photoreceptors. 90% of cases are that. About 10%-ish are what are called wet instead of dry. And the wet macular degeneration is different. Uh, it's due to what's called neovascularization. What does that word mean? What does neo mean? New. New vessels. So that in this case, there are blood vessels that are growing over the macula. Okay. That kind is better managed with, with, uh, with some medications because we have anti-angiogenesis anti meds that are used in cancer treatment and stuff like that to prevent that worsening. And there are some medications that are being developed to try to manage the, the dry type as well. But as it stands right now, there's not a lot of really good ways of managing macular degeneration in most cases. Um, yeah. But by the time they realize that, it's usually quite far into the treatment. Exactly. And so as of right now, any therapy that's used is in an attempt to slow down the progress. There's no real good way to reverse the, the changes that have occurred. Okay? So that can, of course, become you know, a significant visual disability. All right. Any questions about AMD? Oh, one more thing. Uh, there is a there is one well-known 
uh, um, risk factor that can develop, that can lead to macular degeneration is something that is preventable. Anybody want to take a guess? Smoking. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Good. I told you you're going to come across this. Okay. So that's it for the eyes. The rest of the uh, of the rest of this unit is about the ears. So let's talk about some anatomy first and kind of situate ourselves. We'll break the ear down into three parts, the external ear, the middle ear, and the inner ear. So we need to know where the borders of those things are and what is contained within them. So the external ear is basically all this, the pinna, the, the, the oracle, everything you can see on the outside into the auditory meatus, the ear hole, all right? And it goes from there to the tympanic membrane, right? The eardrum, all right? So from everything from the eardrum out is all external ear. So keep that in mind when we come back to it. Uh, as far as we're concerned, there's not a hell of a lot going on here. There's, you, know, you can get infections there, but that's, that's about it. And we'll talk about that in a bit. If you go beyond, so inward, beyond the tympanic membrane, you're now in the middle ear. So the middle ear uh, is everything from there up to but not including the inner ear. So the inner ear is this stuff right here, right? That cochlea, right, literally means shell. It looks like a snail shell. Right, so that cochlea and these semicircular canals and something called the vestibule. So all this thing in here, that's all inner ear. So everything between that and the tympanic membrane is considered middle ear. So there's some important things to understand about the middle ear and, and what's, what's in it. Okay? The first thing that you need to know is that it contains the bony ossicles. What is an ossicle? What does os mean? Bone, okay? All right, these are little mini bones, okay? So auditory ossicles are a critical part of how the conduction pathway uh, of sound actually works. So I'll give you the quick run through, okay? Um, the three ossicles, well, sound waves come from the external ear. They vibrate that tympanic membrane, okay? It's like a drum skin. So it's pulled taut and it vibrates when, it, when there's sound waves that hit it. On the back side of the tympanic membrane, you have the first auditory ossicle attached to it. That's called the malleus. Okay, what's the English name for the malleus? Hammer. Okay, malleus, hammer. Okay, the malleus is attached to what is effectively uh, the next ossicle in what is effectively a tiny little joint. Okay, the next ossicle is called the incus. What is the English term for the incus? Anybody know what a blacksmith does with a hammer? <laughs> strike it on. What's the big heavy thing that you strike a hammer on? Anvil. The anvil. Okay. <coughs> so, hammer, anvil. Okay. The third, and then the incus or anvil is attached through another small articulation to the third ossicle called the stapes. And what is the English term for the stapes? It's really obvious how this looks. What does it look like? Staple. No? Staple? Anybody ride horse? Close. It's a stirrup. Okay? All right, like your feet go in when you ride a horse? Okay, so hammer, anvil, stirrup. Okay? So the stirrup, the stapes, is connected to the inner ear right here through something that's called the oval window. So basically the foot of the stapes is an oval. There's a little cutout in the, uh, in the, uh, inner, in the, 
the workings of the inner ear, which we'll talk about shortly, that is oval-shaped. And basically what happens is sound, wave come, sound waves come in, they vibrate the tympanic membrane, which vibrates the ossicles, one, two, three, and the foot of the stapes basically pushes in and out of that oval window. And it pushes, uh, it changes the pressure inside the cochlea. So it basically creates waves of, what's f uh, of the fluid that is found inside this cochlea. Okay? And the really, really brief version of how this works is throughout the whole cochlea, okay, lining this spiral-shaped organ, you have a, uh, a, a specialized organ called the organ of Corti. Basically, it has these little hair-like fibers. Okay? They're nerve endings. And as you bend the nerve endings, it sends nerve impulses through the nerve to the brain. So effectively, it's a mecha they're mechanoreceptors. So if you push fluid across these hair-like receptors, it bends them and creates uh, uh, the, the nerve signal that's going to be interpreted by the brain as sound. So effectively, how far the fluid gets pushed around in this cochlea uh, and what hairs it actually bends is going to dictate what pitch of sound the brain is interpreting. Okay? And that, is, that information is sent along this nerve right here. Okay? Technically, the stuff from the cochlea is sent through the cochlear nerve which joins with the vestibular nerve for the vestibular apparatus. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, they combine together to, call, uh, to, to a nerve called the auditory nerve, also called another name, which you probably would have learned it by. What's the name for cranial nerve 8? Because that's what this nerve is. Now you're going O, 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 T, T, V. Vestibular cochlear nerve. Right? Because it's the nerve traveling from the vestibu vestibule or vestibular apparatus and the cochlea. Okay, so cranial nerve 8. Anyway, we'll get back to the, to the inner, uh, inner ear in a second. Uh, we're still in the middle ear, right? So the purpose of the middle ear is, to, is, is, is sound transmission, to get those sound waves from the tympanic membrane into the cochlea. So in here, uh, we also have something else that's important. Connected to that middle ear, we have the auditory tube or the eustachian tube. Remember, you have two inner ears, obviously, so one right and one left. Where do those eustachian tubes connect to? We talked about these already. You're close, yeah, yeah. So the, the nasopharynx, okay? So basically, the, the back, so the pharynx at the level of the nose. Okay, so I was talking before about how you can get middle ear infections. What's the name for the, for the infection of the middle ear? Otitis media, right? Media means middle. So otitis media can be inflammatory, and that's not an infection, but it can be inflammation due to an infection, either viral or bacterial. And how does it get there? It doesn't come through here, right? Unless there's a puncture in the tympanic membrane, that of course it can. It comes from the eustachian tube. It climbs upward from the nasopharynx across this, uh, along this continuous mucous membrane, and it lands in the middle ear, causes an infection, and you build up pressure, and it can really hurt. Okay, so keep that in mind. Uh, what else? The inner ear again. So the inner ear basically has two parts. The part that I was referring to was for hearing, the cochlea, again shell-shaped organ with the lining inside it with those nerve fibers, the nerve endings, the little hair-like fibers, uh, that's called the organ of cordy. Okay? The other half of this inner ear apparatus are these things right here. Okay? So this is called the vestibule, and then there's three semicircular canals. Okay? 
So the semicircular canals actually work mechanically somewhat quite similarly to the, to the cochlea in that lining those semicircular canals, you're going to have those little hair-like nerve endings, and you're going to have a fluid that passes through those semicircular canals. And as the fluid moves through those canals, it bends those nerve endings, and it sends that information, that initiates uh, um, astrapotentials, and it sends that information along that same vestibular cochlear nerve to the brain. We combine it with other things like vision and cerebellar input, and it gives us uh, um, information about balance. Okay? The reason there are three semicircular canals is because that allows them to be at 90 degree angles from one another. So there's one that goes up, forward, sideways. So basically if you turn your head, you now have three dimensions of movement that your brain can get interpretation of, uh, of, of position from. Okay? So it gives us information about balance. And there's things that can go wrong. We'll talk about, um, we'll talk about for example, um, Meniere's disease. I think it's our last topic, where there's excessive, uh, excessive amounts of that fluid that's supposed to be in there. And it gives the brain altered information about balance, and the person gets vertigo. It's not in your notes, but uh, we'll talk about it briefly. You may have heard of, uh, of this condition. It's called BPPV. Benign paroxysmal. What does paroxysmal mean? We used that word before. Episodic. Attacks, comes and goes. Positional. Vertigo. Okay, just to kind of tie this back into the function of this. So the, uh, the, the semicircular canals, right, it's supposed to have the fluid in it with those little hair-like nerve endings that get bent when the fluid moves through them. Sometimes that fluid can, uh, you can essentially um, get crystals that form. All right, so little uh, condensations of, of what should be fluid and is now solid. And those little crystals can bounce around in those semicircular canals. And so as the crystals move around, they're going to be banging against those nerve endings and giving it false information about where the head is in space. And again, the brain is taking that information plus other information it's getting from cerebellum and from vision, and it combines it to give you the sense of balance. And if your brain's getting altered information from two different systems, then the result is the world starts spinning, okay? Vertigo. So people with BPPV will often be fine when they're at rest, okay? And it's typically when they roll over or, or move their head in a particular direction, everything starts spinning, okay? It can be brief, as in, you know, you roll over in bed and for a few seconds it happens that way. Or I've had patients that come in that every single, you know, every moment of the day for the last week, world's spinning and they're running into the wall because they can't, they can't walk straight. Okay. So, uh, also as kind of same discussion, uh, does anybody here get uh, car sick? Okay. So how do you how do you how do you how do you manage car sickness? Okay, but what's the most important thing to manage car sickness? You're, you're, you're yes, part of that. <laughs> okay, if so, if you're prone to car sickness, what's what what seat do you want to be in? The front seat. The front seat. Okay, because what's happening is your brain is combining information from two different systems. 
Okay? It's getting information from your eyes about what's happening in front of you. Are you moving? Okay? It's also receiving information from, your, uh, from other apparatuses. So the semicircular canals will give you information about head position. And the vestibule, we didn't really talk about, that's this little kind of opening right here. It gives you information about acceleration. There's fluid in there too. So as you're, as you're moving linearly, it sloshes around and gives your brain information about which direction you're moving in. So basically, if you're often, if you're afflicted by car sickness and you're looking out the, the window ahead of you, you're pretty much okay. If you're in the back seat and your vision is telling you the headrest in front of you, that's you know, a foot in front of you, is not moving, but my inner ear is telling me that I'm moving, then the brain is getting conflicting information and you get ill. Okay. So the fix is to look where you're going. All right. Okay. So this is what I was talking about earlier. Pathway of the sound. Sound waves come in from the external ear, vibrate the tympanic membrane, vibrate the ossicles in order. Malleus incus stapes, hammer anvil stirrup. Yep. I have a question about the motion sickness thing. Is sure. that the same thing for like dogs too, like pets? I have no idea. No? <laughs> Not a clue. Probably. Probably, yeah. but I, I don't know. I don't know. I think vets have a ridiculously hard job. <laughs> Absolutely impossible. I like my patients to be able to verbalize what's wrong with them. Anyway. Okay. Uh, so, uh, again, vibrate the tematic membrane, uh, vibrate malleus and stapes, foot of the stapes on the oval window, pushes fluid uh, through the cochlea, uh, fluid brushes the hairs of the organ of cordy. You get information relating to sound. That's passed from the uh, cranial nerve 8, vestibular cochlear, to the temporal lobe uh, where your auditory cortex is, and you interpret sound. So if you're going to mess, if you're going to have some, uh, uh, some kind of, uh, of deafness or an issue with, with, uh, with interpreting sound, then there's a bunch of places along that line where that can happen. So you can have what's called conduction deafness, which is an issue with the conduction of the sound waves, either from the external ear to the tympanic membrane, or a problem with the vibration of those auditory ossicles. Or you can have sensory neural deafness, which is uh, an impairment of the inner ear workings or the transmission of those action potentials through cranial nerve 8 to the uh, temporal lobe or anywhere along that neural pathway. So we'll classify the deafnesses that way. Uh, like I said, <coughs> semicircular canals, uh, that's the other part of the inner ear. Uh, three of them at right angles from, another, from one another. They have uh, those hair-like nerve endings also, like the uh, cochlea, and an, a fluid called endolymph, which sloshes around in the canal, brushes against those hairs, and gives your, your head information, your brain information about position and balance. Okay. This is what I was referring to. So the two major types of conduction or of, of deafness, hearing loss, are conduction deafness and sensory neural impairment. So conduction deafness, again, somewhere between external ear and the pathway on the way to the inner ear. So it could be uh, wax buildup, right? If your ear is full of wax, sound waves can't get to the tympanic membrane. Make sense? Um, you can also get uh, um, something called autosclerosis, autosclerosis of the ossicles. So again, we're talking about the three little bones in the middle ear. What does sclerosis mean? Shape, shape, 
change shape? Sort of, not, not quite. Sclerosis means scarring or hardening. All right, so you've probably heard of atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Okay, autosclerosis, hardening or scarring of something in the ear. Okay, so this this is referring to those little joints between the uh, ossicles. So if you if you uh, harden or scar those joints, you don't get that vibration effect, and you get a conduction uh, a deafness or an impairment of, of transmission of the sound waves from the outside of the ear to the inner ear. Anybody want to take a guess at uh, what kind of thing could cause autosclerosis? So where are they? What part of the ear are they? You have external, middle, internal. Middle. Okay. What can go wrong in the middle ear that might cause scarring of? Good. Okay. Exactly. So recurrent otitis media. If you have recurrent ear infections, it can cause autosclerosis, and you can end up with a type of conduction deafness. Okay. <clears throat> sensory neural impairment, as the name implies, right? Sensory neural, it's a nervous system issue, so it's not an issue with getting the sound waves to the inner ear, it's from the inner ear on. So you either have an issue with the, the function of the inner ear, uh, or the transmission of those action potentials along cranial nerve 8 to the temporal lobe or somewhere in between. Right? If you were to have a tumor or, or a bleed, a stroke of the temporal lobe and an impairment of that, your ear can work just fine, but you're still not going to be able to hear because that's an impairment of the nervous system and it's not sound until your brain interprets it. Same way if you were to have a lesion along cranial nerve 8, same kind of thing. The ears can work just fine. Uh, but if you can't get that information to the temporal lobe, it's irrelevant. Okay? <clears throat> this also uh, will include damage to the, uh, the, the mechanism inside the cochlea itself. And so this is, I mean, a very, very typical problem. Okay? Presbycusis. Does anybody remember the, uh, the prefix from last week? Presby. We used it in context of vision. It was presbyopia. What's presbyopia? <coughs> okay. Remember the visual problems we talked about last week? We had myopia, nearsightedness, hyperopia, farsightedness, and presbyopia, which is farsightedness associated with aging. Okay. Who wants to guess what presbycusis means? A hearing loss associated with aging. Exactly. Okay. So this is the progressive damage to the inner lining of the, uh, of the, the internal mechanism of the cochlea that occurs uh, related to, to age. All right. <laughs> there are other ways more acutely that this can occur. <coughs> um, head trauma, uh, infection, um, uh, neurological issues, so say things like uh, MS or stroke or something that's going to cause direct uh, damage to the neural pathway from the inner ear to the temporal lobe. Uh, and there are uh, drugs that are autotoxic. Okay? And auto refers to ear. Toxic, of course, means damaging. Uh, so there are certain classes of drugs that uh, need to be monitored for hearing changes because it can cause permanent uh, hearing loss. Okay? There's chemotherapy drugs that do that. There are antibiotics that do that. There are 
uh, diuretics that do that. Uh, so there's a bunch of meds that have to be monitored for those kinds of things. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Of course, hearing is super important for language development, so this is something that every newborn gets screened for uh, very early on. We, of course, um, for the conduction part of it, uh, there are things like hearing aids, which will amplify sound coming in from outside, and the more significant uh, uh, type, cochlear implants. So I'm not going to pretend to understand exactly how cochlear implants work, so here's the real brief version and what you need to know for now. Cochlear implant is, as the name suggests, an implant that goes directly into the cochlea. Okay? So what you're going to have is essentially uh, a, um, an artificial receiver on the outside that's going to hear okay, or receive sound. It's going to send that as an electrical message through a transmitter along an electrode that has been implanted directly into the cochlea, which electrically stimulates the cochlea and that person is able to interpret that as, as sound because you're stimulating the nerve endings in the cochlea to send that information to the brain. Quite frankly, beyond that, I don't know the details of how exactly the various stimulations work, but that's good enough for now. Okay, uh, some quick terminology, just so we're on the same page as far as being uh, uh, polite. Uh, someone who is who is uh, deaf. Deaf means they have a congenital hearing deficit, so they're born deaf. Uh, someone who is deafened means that they acquired that hearing deficit. So they, at some point, had functional hearing and they have lost it. Uh, and as a, a point of, um, of, uh, of politeness, um, the term hearing impaired is preferred to hard of hearing. Okay? Let's talk about some disorders. Uh, we use that term already, right? Otitis media. So, as the name suggests, otitis, inflammation of the middle ear. Okay, and again, remember the relevant anatomy. You've got eustachian tubes, or auditory tubes, uh, and uh, um, an infection can climb upward and land in that middle ear. So that could, of course, be, it can be, uh, you can have otitis media that is non-infectious. Okay? You can have inflammatory otitis media. You can have viral otitis media, which similarly you would treat symptomatically. Right? You, you know, how, would you, how would you treat a child that has viral otitis media? Yeah, exactly. Pain meds. Right? Exactly. So you're, you're managing symptoms in, in, the, in the short term. Okay? Where, you know, in cases where it's a bacterial infection, of course, you're going to do that, plus your antibiotics, okay? Because with any infection, especially bacterial infection, if there is purulent exudate that's formed, that exudate has to drain somewhere. And that's the purpose of those, uh, of those uh, eustachian tubes to begin with, right? It's a dr it serves as um, a, a, a way to drain that middle ear, equalize pressure, right? When you, when you, have, when you feel pressure built up in your middle ears and you plug your nose and blow out, and you feel that little pop, that's pressure being equalized from your nasopharynx into your middle ear. Okay? Um, so it, that's the normal purpose. But again, of course, stuff can go backwards and climb up, and bacterial infection that creates purulent exudates can plug up that, that drainage tube and create a real painful buildup of pressure in the middle ear. Okay? So it can be, decongestants can be used sometimes to help drain it, um, but if it's a bacterial infection, you're clearly treating it that way. Uh, treating with uh, antibiotics. Um, some people, and the primary population here is clearly children, 
uh, young children who are still developing. Um, some kids just anatomically are more prone to middle ear infections. It's something to do with the development of, uh, of how the eustachian tube develops. It's of course, it exists, it just changes as the kid's head changes in size and shape and develops. Um, so there's something about that that certain kids are prone to it, so unfortunately it can happen recurrently. Uh, it can obviously happen as a one-off too. Again, a throat infection that climbs upward. The issue with recurrent infection, again, is that um, the more times it occurs, the more inflammatory damage there is, the more uh, likelihood there is of things like scar tissue, uh, and that can, again, occur in the middle ear, cause things like autosclerosis, uh, or damage to the tympanic membrane itself. Okay, so sometimes um, kids that have uh, recurrent ear infections that are difficult to manage, that's when you'll insert the tubes temporarily. So basically you puncture the, uh, the tympanic membrane and insert a drainage tube that connects the middle ear to the external ear. So it, it allows a, a way for the fluid and pressure to drain externally if the eustachian tubes are not doing the job correctly. Okay, those are temporary. Uh, eventually take them out. Um, does the tympanic membrane ever heal after that? Yeah, it does. Some tympanic membrane will eventually scar over and, and heal, uh, and it'll be restored, um, but it takes some time. Okay. So as I mentioned, ear infections can be either viral or bacterial. Um, there are some common offenders, Haemophilus influenza. Remember that that's Haemophilus influenza is a bacterium. That's not influenza virus. Um, there's also some, you know, pneumococci, staphylococci, streptococci, basically stuff that commonly causes bacterial throat infections. Okay. Also remember too that, uh, oops, sorry. How do you manage the viral infection of this again? Symptomatic management, right? Pain meds, decongestants, stuff like that. Remember that even though the way you treat that is different than you treat a bacterial infection, it is possible due to the inflammatory environment that subsequent to a viral infection, you can have a bacterial infection afterwards. Remember? We talked about that in the, uh, in the respiratory system. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the severity of this, of course, is going to depend on uh, how well or, or not the middle ear drains, how significant the infection is. Um, <clears throat> you guys have used otoscopes to look in the ear, yes? Okay. Have you seen an angry tympanic membrane? Okay. Yeah, some yes, some no. So this is what the tympanic membrane should normally look like. It's kind of transparent-ish. And that is what it might look like with otitis media. All right, so your cardinal signs of inflammation. Um, it's, it's redness, it's swollen, it's angry, and it probably hurts. It's angry. All right. <clears throat> Again, symptomatic management is for, for viral, uh, antibacterials for bacterial, decongestants to help the drainage. And as I mentioned, uh, surgery is not your go-to, uh, but if it's recurrent and the child is, uh, is uh, prone to it, then that may be an option. Okay, almost done. Uh, otitis externa. Otitis externa, as the name suggests, is inflammation or infection of the external ear. So basically from tympanic membrane out. Uh, the other name for this is swimmer's ear. So it can be a number of different organisms. Uh, it can be bacterial, it can be fungal, it can be a bunch of different things. Um, it, as the name suggests, swimmer's ear, it's, you know, it's common especially with people that use earplugs. 
uh, or, or are in pools often. Um, other, another common way is uh, earbuds, right? Stuff you stick in your ear that can be come and you know get bacteria on it, and then you put them in your ear, and the bacteria spreads to the to the middle ear. Uh, so the, what the, this normally is, of course, painful. It's an infection, and typically, if there's an infection of anywhere in that canal or in the middle ear, it's going to hurt to touch any part of the ear. So if you kind of tug on the pinna, it will hurt everywhere. All right. Um, if it's bacterial, of course, there could be you no know, pus virulence. Um, and if there's enough buildup uh, there, the, of the purulent exudates, then it can block sound conduction. Right? This would be a conduction deafness. There's, you can't get the sound waves in to the uh, tympanic membrane, and so nothing wrong with the neural mechanism. It's an issue conducting sound waves. Okay? Of course, treat that as. You would expect if it's bacterial, antibiotics. Uh, if it's fungal, then probably a, a topical antifungal. Make sense? Pretty straightforward? All right. Uh, and then there are a couple chronic disorders, and then we're done. Uh, so this one, we already used that term, autosclerosis. Um, autosclerosis is scarring, hardening, and eventual bony change of the ossicles. So, and what are those ossicles in order from out, outer to inner? Hammer, anvil, stirrup, malleus, incus, stapes. Did I repeat myself enough times? Okay. Wink, wink. Um, so ultimately, if there's autosclerosis, uh, it's typically caused by, uh, by recurrent inflammation, so often uh, um, recurrent infection. Um, the, the issue, again, is, is you can develop a conduction type of deafness because you're not conducting the sound waves from the tympanic membrane to the inner ear. Uh, there is a treatment for this. Uh, it is a small a microsurgery. So you basically go in and surgically remove and replace the stirrup, the state piece. It's a tiny little thing, but it can be done. Uh, so that would restore some you know, component of the, of the sound conduction. And lastly, uh, Meniere's. So Meniere's disease or Meniere's syndrome is an issue of the inner ear. Okay, so the vestibule and or um, uh, semicircular canals. Um, to be totally fair, we don't exactly understand all of Meniere's disease, but I'll give you what we do understand. Remember that inside those apparatuses, there is going to be that fluid called endolymph, and the endolymph is going to move through it and brush against those nerve endings and give our brain information about position, acceleration, and balance. Um, we think that Meniere's disease is, a, is an excessive production of endolymph. So what happens if you produce way too much endolymph for that system? It's, it's going to give your brain all sorts of information that is, that is not accurate about your position of your head in space and if your head is accelerating or not. So that information is, again, faulty information due to the excessive endolymph brushing on those hair cells those nerve fibers, uh, and it's going to send the brain information that is, does not jive with the rest of the information that the brain's getting from the other ear, from the cerebellum, from the eyes, and the result is significant vertigo. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so there are, ways to <clears throat> there are ways to test for this, um, balance testing and something called electronystagmography, which basically is monitoring for nystagmus. So you're, it's, it's a close monitoring of what's happening in the eyes during a balance test. Um, 
don't need to get into too much detail on anything, any of the rest of the tests, but um, the, the issue with Meniere's is um, it's hard to manage. There are, it's, it's usually chronic. Um, again, we don't fully understand the cause, so there's no great answers. There are some medications that can be used to dampen the effects sometimes, but they don't work for everybody. Uh, and a person who has Meniere's, again, it's often chronic and it tends to come episodically. Uh, and often with minimal warning because there's not necessarily anything that we know of that's going to predispose somebody to an attack. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the world starts spinning. And as you might expect, if that happens recurrently and unexpectedly, that can be potentially dangerous. All right? Say it happens when you're driving or I, I, I knew of a pilot who had to give up their license because they got diagnosed with Meniere's and, and those kinds of things. So um, difficult one to manage. Um, Every case is, is very different. Questions? Okay, let's take a break until 10 o'clock. And we'll start talking about endocrine. Okay, so let's talk about the endocrine system. <laughs> when you hear endocrine system, what do you think? Skin? Uh, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> try, let's try again. <laughs> what was that? Lymph nodes. No. Hormones. That's what I want to hear. Okay? So, this is one of the two methods of communication that your body has. Right? The two primary uh, communication systems in the body are the nervous system, right? Send elect uh, direct electrical messages from one part of the body to another, and the endocrine system. So you create hormones. They are chemicals that you make in a gland in one part of the body, and then they end up engaging receptors at cells in another part of the body. Okay? So when you're comparing those two, which one's faster? Nervous system. Which one has a longer lasting effect? Endocrine, right? Because the hormones are going to remain in the blood until they break down, and that's either done by the kidney uh, kidneys as they release them into the urine or broken down by the liver or something like that. Okay, so um, it, it, the other part of that is that the, the nervous system and the endocrine system are very much interrelated. They're linked together. Okay, uh, we'll see a few examples of that. Um, now this is, no, we're not going to go into a terrible amount of depth on the anatomy, but I do need you to of course know where it is that we're talking about. Okay, so the other, the other thing about before we get into the, into the glands is that Endocrine by definition. What's the, dif what's the difference between an endocrine gland and an exocrine gland? Good. I'll take that. Okay. So endo and exo. So you're talking about in and out of effect effectively the bodily fluids or the blood. So endocrine glands don't really have ducts, and they basically will it will uh, release their, the the stuff they make hormones directly into the bodily fluids. So they're going to go pretty much straight into the bloodstream. Okay? Extracrine glands are going to have ducts, so basically little tubes, pathways, and they're going to pass their, their uh, secretions into, into some other part. And you're right when it's, you say exocrine means technically, quote unquote, outside the body. So exocrine secretions are going to be things like sweat and saliva and uh, breast milk. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so if it's being released from the body, then that would be an exocrine secretion. Yeah. Uh, the other trickier part, and we'll talk about this in, next week uh, in the digestive system, is that um, there are exocrine secretions from the pancreas that are not going outside the body, quote unquote. Okay? But if you think of the digestive tract as a tube that runs from mouth to anus, that is effectively the inside of that tube is outside the body. I don't, the recording can't see my air quotes, but uh, <laughs> that is the way to think of exocrine secretions in the pancreas, which are super important. So digestive enzymes and bicarbonate and stuff that the pancreas makes. Okay? Now, all of these glands all right, are going to create uh, hormones, chemicals that are going to be secreted in their respective parts of the body, enter the bloodstream, and travel elsewhere. Okay? And do the, all hormones act on all cells of the body? No. What's required for them to act on a cell? A receptor. So they have to have a specific receptor that's going to recognize that hormone. The presence of that hormone engaging that receptor on a specific type of cell is going to initiate a cascade of, of stuff going on inside the cell. So effectively, hormones are messengers that will tell certain cells to do things at certain times. Okay? Now, uh, there's a, a small handful of relevant anatomy. You have to know where they are. Okay? This is in a, a, a list form, two slides ahead. Okay? When you think broadly, endocrine system, okay, where is the control center of the, of the endocrine system? Specifically where? I got a bunch of people pointing to their heads. That's a good start. <laughs> That's a very good start. It is in there somewhere. Hypothalamus. Good. Okay. The hypothalamus. So if you remember any kind of developmental uh, um, neuroanatomy, the hypothalamus is one of these very deep-seated, primitive portions of our brain that's controlling very, very um, early basic functions. Okay? So let's take a quick look at, if you had to pick off that list, what is the master endocrine gland, what would you say? The pituitary. pituitary gland, right? Let's just take a second look to refresh ourselves on the anatomical relationship between those things. So this, right, right there is the pituitary gland. As you'll notice, it has a direct anatomical connection with the hypothalamus. The pituitary gland kind of looks like this little sac that's connected by a stalk to something above it. The something above it is the hypothalamus. So effectively, the hypothalamus controls what the pituitary gland does. The pituitary gland is a gland, and it will release hormones that go throughout the bloodstream elsewhere in the body. And in some cases, it's a fairly straightforward relationship from there, as in those hormones will act on cells of the body and tell them to do something. In some cases, it's a more complex relationship. You guys learn about how the adrenal glands work? No? What about how the, how about how, how the thyroid gland works? Okay. So, you, that's in there somewhere. So, uh, if, if you're, uh, what is, the, what is the, I'm going a side, uh, side journey here. What does a thyroid gland do? What does a thyroid gland make that's relevant for, for uh, to the endocrine system? It does not, but that's part of this conversation. So, the thyroid gland makes thyroid hormone. Right? It's technically two different things, T3 and T4, we'll get there. Okay? Those run your metabolism. So thyroid hormones are, are going to interact with the majority of the cells in the body. 
The more of it there is, the faster your metabolism goes. The less of it is, the less the metabolism. And that's a pretty broad overview. Okay? What tells the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone? TSH. All right? Made in the pituitary gland. What tells the pituitary gland to make TSH? TRH comes from the hypothalamus. So there's this chain of events. Right? In order to make thyroid hormone, the hypothalamus releases a hormone that tells the pituitary to release a hormone that tells the thyroid to release hormones. And, and anywhere along that chain, if there's, if there's something wrong, then the end result will be altered. Did you, did you say something, sorry? Uh, it's a different, that's a different mechanism. But the, the point is, um, you have to understand that relationship. So the, the hypothalamus drives the pituitary function, which is going to either have direct function on the cells of the body or tell other glands of the endocrine system to make their own hormones, which will act on the cells of the body. So what glands are we talking about? The thyroid gland, okay? You have thyroid gland, anterior neck. Uh, uh, parathyroid glands, how many parathyroid glands do you have? Four, right, on the back side of the thyroid gland. Good. Uh, where's the thymus? That's a tricky one. Yep, yep, it's just deep to your sternum. So if you were to open up the sternum, actually, if you were to do an open heart surgery, right, you open up the, the sternum, you have to clip through the thymus to get at the, the pericardium and into the heart. Uh, adrenals, right, adrenal on top of the kidney, sitting on top of the, of the kidney, so there are two adrenal glands. Pancreas, uh, pancreas has, again, both important exocrine and endocrine functions. So here we're talking about the endocrine function, right? The exocrine function we'll talk about next unit in the digestive system, super important. The endocrine function of the pancreas is what? What does it make? A couple of things, but there's one really important one. Insulin. Okay? Uh, and that's relevant because uh, this unit, although it's called endocrine system, should really be called diabetes and other. Okay? The first half of this unit is on diabetes, so make sure you get comfortable with it. My impression is at this point in the program, you have talked about diabetes about a half dozen times already? Okay, good. Um, pineal gland. Where's the pineal gland? In your brain, at the back. Good. Do you know what it makes? What's it involved with? This is as deep as we're going to get into the pineal gland for this unit. There's nothing else about it. It's involved in your sleep-wake cycle. Hormones related to sleep. Okay. Uh, ovaries, two. Testes, two. Uh, no real significant discussion with those in this unit because they will be in the reproductive unit, which we do have to talk about sometime soon, but not today. Okay, some basic chemical, chemical classifications. Hormones are typically going to be either steroid hormones or non-steroid hormones. The difference is a little molecule called cholesterol. Okay, so all steroid hormones are considered lipid-based because they are built out of, uh, they involve at least one molecule of cholesterol, which is special. It's got a ring shape, makes it a lipid, so it's fat-soluble. Okay, so if... In case I haven't talked about this enough yet, uh, cholesterol is nothing to be afraid of. Okay? Cholesterol got a real bad rap in the 80s for a very poor reason. Uh, cholesterol is absolutely necessary for human life. 
It's a part of every single one of your cell membranes, and every single one of your steroid hormones is built from it. If, your if you don't get enough cholesterol in your, in your diet, your body will manufacture it. Okay? There's also not a terribly strong relationship with how much cholesterol you put in your mouth and how much ends in your bloodstream. So, yeah, that surprises people. Oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of reasons why why the, the why you shouldn't be afraid of eggs. All right, um, the yes, there is a high cholesterol content in the yolk, but the the first part is that there are there's other things in the egg yolk that prevent the absorption of that cholesterol into your body, and the second part of that is the cholesterol that does get into your body is not only necessary, but if there's too much, your body will regulate it. So anyway, not not today's discussion. Eggs are a nearly perfect food, so don't be, don't be afraid of them. Uh, Non-steroids. Non-steroid hormones mean they are not lipid-based, so they're not built out of cholesterol. They are typically going to be made of what? Protein. Okay, they're going to be protein. Okay. Now, the difference functionally between those two, steroid and non-steroid, is that uh, remember what your cell membranes are made out of phospholipid bilayer with some cholesterol. So it's fat. So steroid hormones will go directly, they can, they can move directly through a fat-based membrane. So they can, they're fat-soluble. So steroid hormones will go straight into a cell and act on the nucleus directly versus a non-steroid or big protein hormone that can't get through the cell membrane is going to have to engage a receptor on the outside of, of the cell and ca have this cascade of events that happens inside the cell. Okay. So, don't be afraid of this slide. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I can tell you that the ones that are relevant for our discussion in this unit will be found on the slides that we're going to discuss. Okay? So, don't, don't worry about it. <coughs> Basic control mechanisms. Okay? So, again, the, all of your metabolic activities in your body are going to be controlled by the some element of the either nervous system, endocrine system, or both in some combination. And the vast, vast, vast majority of those control mechanisms are going to be negative feedback loops. So you remember homeostasis, right? Anatomy 1, probably the very first class, uh, you talked about you have a particular um, variable in the body. In this case, it's, it's, no, it doesn't really matter what it is. You have a variable you're trying to control. You have some deviation away from that set point where the variable is supposed to be, and you need a mechanism in place to bring it back to its set point. And the idea behind a negative feedback loop is you have receptors that will detect that change away from the set point. Uh, you'll have, it sends information to a control center, in these cases either the brain or a gland of the endocrine system, which acts as a control center and sends uh, something, some kind of information out in the form of an effector. So it's either a nervous impulse or a releasing a hormone that is going to act on that change in that variable, whether it's temperature or hormone level or whatever, to bring it back to the set point. And once back to the set point, then those same receptors that detected the deviation are going to detect that it's now back to normal and it shuts off that whole loop. So that's the, the negative feedback loop. Okay? That controls the vast majority of systems in the body. There are two or three-ish exceptions to that. Okay? Childbirth, so labor and delivery. Anybody that has ever experienced that knows that it doesn't, you don't tend to have uh, um, contractions that are weaker and farther apart they come closer and closer and closer together as the hormones that are released essentially snowball and create uh, um, uh, more and more and more labor 
right? Uh, blood clotting is the, same, is the same kind of idea, right? When you're creating a blood clot, uh, you want it to continue to clot more and more and more until it finally uh, it does the job that it's supposed to do. And the third one that's not on there um, is breastfeeding. Uh, so basically, um, there are hormones that, are, that cause uh, the release of milk. Uh, if baby sucks on the nipple, uh, gets milk, it causes more sucking, and it also that's a stimulation for mom to release more of the hormones, so more milk gets released. Okay? So, along the way, <laughs> we're also going to see this concept of antagonism. So there are, not all, but certain pairs of, uh, certain hormones will have an antagonist uh, hormone uh, that acts essentially in direct opposition of it. So it does the direct opposite job. So up, off the top, uh, these are all ones that we'll, we'll talk about in, in some kind of more detail eventually, uh, but calcitonin and parathyroid hormone. That's a pair of hormones that are direct antagonists. What do they do? What variable do they act on? What are they trying to alter in the body? Blood levels of something. Calcitonin, thank you, okay. Calcitonin does what to blood calcium levels? It makes them go up or down, you have two choices. Calcitonin makes calcium go down. The antagonist of calcitonin is parathyroid hormone. PTH. Anybody want to guess what it does to calcium? It goes up. Makes it go up. Antagonist. Okay. Uh, where's calcitonin made? I'll give you an easier question. Where is parathyroid hormone made? And the parathyroid glands. All right. Good. Where is calcitonin made? in the thyroid gland. That's the second job of the thyroid. Makes thyroid hormone and calcitonin, okay? As a side note, PTH acts on places like the gut and the kidneys to, re to absorb more calcium into the body. If it absolutely has to, it will demineralize bone. It'll suck calcium out of bone to put it in the blood. Calcitonin basically does the opposite. Its job is to take calcium out of the blood, which means it pushes it into bone. Okay? So they are antagonists. They do the direct opposite job. Um, another pair of antagonist hormones would be insulin and glucagon. What are they affecting? Blood levels of glucose, right? So insulin, I'm going to say G, glucose. So what is uh, in glucagon? Which is which? Sorry? Good. Insulin decreases blood glucose levels by pushing it into cells, and glucagon increases blood glucose levels. What's the primary mechanism of how glucagon does that? How does glucagon increase blood glucose levels? Just magically says, 
Here's some glucose. From where? Where do you store blood glucose? Where do you store glucose that can be released when necessary into the blood? Good, the liver. Glycogenolysis, yeah. Right? Glycogenolysis, glycogen, lysis, breakdown of glycogen, breakdown of glycogen into glucose. So it'll release it. It can also do it through gluconeogenesis, where it builds glucose from non carbohydrate sources like fats or proteins, but that's only if it has to. Okay, so antagonists. We can go through our simplistic examples of a negative feedback loop, kind of go around both sides of this. Let's say, for example, you have high blood glucose. You've just eaten a big meal, right? And uh, you're digesting and absorbing that glucose into your bloodstream. So it's now there, blood glucose is up. That is detected by receptors, which will say, okay, let's release some insulin from the pancreas. So you release insulin, insulin pushes glucose into the cells of the body, which decreases blood glucose, which is detected by those same receptors, which means don't make so much insulin now. Okay, so insulin is not, doesn't remain at a constant level, it spikes uh, in response to your, your meals and what comes into your blood. The exact opposite will occur uh, if you have uh, low blood glucose, receptors will stimulate glucagon to be released, which uh, releases glucose from the liver. Anyway, let's move on. So, <laughs> um, hormones and how hormones are released into the body, like I said, uh, predominantly going to be operating in negative feedback mechanisms like the basic one we just saw uh, so that the, um, the end result is going to shut off the, the loop that's been initiated to, to create a change in whatever variable it is you're talking about. Um, <coughs> those are pretty simple examples. Sometimes it's a little more complex like for example the um, hypothalamus to pituitary gland to, to other gland kind of uh, more complex loops that I was referring to. Um, there won't be many examples in this unit that we need to go into that level of detail. Not all hormones are released like that. Um, some hormones are going to be released uh, based on timing and in a cyclic manner. Any examples we know of? Good. Right? Right? Female, female reproductive hormones, okay? They get, they get released on this macro cycle of, you know, 28-ish days. Okay. Now, here's the basic idea before we go any farther into the endocrine system, okay? There, we're going to learn a bunch of disorders. Again, this week is mostly diabetes. We'll probably roll into next week. But beyond that, there's a few other disorders. And sometimes people get confused and say, well, what, you know, what, I don't know, I'm losing track of what these are. Take a step back and realize that in the endocrine system, you basically have two possibilities for a disorder, okay? The two possibilities are you have too much or too little of the effect of a hormone. That's basically it, okay? So there are a few things that can lead to those findings. Uh, so let's say, for example, uh, what can lead to excess amounts of a hormone? Well, congenital. You're born with a hypersecreting gland, okay? You are born with um, gigantism, okay? Gigantism is you have um, a hypersecretion, an oversecretion of which hormone? Hormone. 
Human growth hormone, HGH, right? <laughs> growth hormone. Okay. Where is growth hormone made? In the pituitary gland. Okay. So somebody's born with gigantism, right? So they have a hypersecreting pituitary gland that oversecretes growth hormone. They're born with it. They're going to get enormous. We'll see examples of that next week. Okay. Now. Alternatively, let's say you're born and you're not, you don't have a hypersecreting uh, a, a gland or you know, something like that, you can develop a tumor. So the thing to remember about tumors is uh, a tumor, uh, by definition, is rapid growth of a particular tissue. All right. So in the case of a gland, there's two possibilities. One, it can be a hypersecreting tumor, or two, it can be a hyposecreting tumor. So hypersecreting tumor basically says, Okay, you've got a, uh, it'll take that example, uh, well, let's, uh, well, we'll use the pituitary gland again. Okay, you're born normal, right? And at some point later in life, you develop a pituitary adenoma. Okay, Adi what does adin mean? Gland, right? Oma, tumor. So you have now a, a tumor that's developing in the pituitary gland. So it starts to get bigger, right? And it's got more cells to it. And in this example, if it's a hypersecreting tumor, those cells are gland cells, and they are doing the job of what that gland is supposed to do, which is secrete, you know, whatever hormones. So you can have this tumor that's hypersecreting growth hormone. All right, and there's a name for that too. All right, it's called acromegaly. Often in adults, when this develops, it's called acromegaly. The only difference between acromegaly and gigantism is that in someone with acromegaly, they're hypersecreting growth hormone after their growth plates have already closed. So they don't get taller, but they get thicker. We'll talk about that next week. All right. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it does. HGH gut? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about it now. <laughs> uh, just two seconds. So um, those are topics we're going to get to eventually, right? Acromegaly is basically hypersecretion of growth hormone later in life. When do your growth plates close? Yeah, it's sometime after puberty, yeah. Yes, it's about usually in the 25, 21 to 25 range. Very specific and correct. Uh, so anyway, so if you have excess growth hormone in your blood before your growth plates close and your bones can't get any longer, they will keep getting longer until the growth plates close. That's called gigantism. If your growth plates have already closed and you have excess uh, um, growth hormone being secreted by your pituitary gland, in our example that we strayed way down the path away from, this was a, a, a pituitary tumor. We call that acromegaly, and often presents as a thickening of the of the brow because the bone gets thicker in the in the uh, forehead, for example. You get thickening of the pads in the hands and feet, uh, and thickening of all sorts of other stuff. And since you asked, let's talk about it now. <coughs> How else can you get excess hormone levels? Well, careful with that that word, but but uh, but you're on the right track, right? Exogenous introduction. Exogenous means from the outside. Okay, so in this example, you can inject human growth hormone. And why would you want to do this? 
to get bigger because it makes things get bigger. Now, careful when you say steroids, right? Some people say, when you say steroids, steroids specifically refers to a chemical, uh, a chemical um, portion of a, a specific kind of hormone. And so people who take steroid hormones, you're talking about things like testosterone, androgens, because testosterone is a steroid hormone. Human growth hormone is not. Okay, so and the point is, athletes will take this because it helps you heal quicker and it helps you get you know, uh, stronger and bigger and it, it, you know, it's good for performance. You're, you were talking about bodybuilders, right? Yeah. Because Schwarzenegger did it, that was pure diet and muscle, sometimes a little bit of added help. Maybe a little added help. Yeah. Yep, for sure. So uh, so, so here is because I don't want to run out of time yet. So you can under, it's pretty simple to understand the reason why a competitive bodybuilder would want to take HGH, right? By definition, the goal of bodybuilding is to get as big as humanly possible. Okay, so the problem is, all right. So if, if you ever if you ever look at if you ever see look at pictures of old bodybuilders, okay, because they've had time to to accumulate this stuff. Okay. All right. So these are two famous bodybuilders. They are objectively jacked. Right. They're huge. They're cut. Right. So you see a lot of significant definition there. Right. But both of them have huge guts. Okay, what is that? It's not fat. That is their organs, right? Because human growth hormone is not specific to muscle. Right? It makes bones get thicker. It makes muscle get bigger. It makes organs get hypertrophied. This is called HGH gut. So this is a permanent enlargement of the internal organs because of prolonged exposure to HDH. Not not with any not at any real significant rate. Okay? Anybody want to guess what the what the what the uh, likely relationship is between this and lo no longer term diseases like cancers? What, what do you think the what do you think the relationship is going to be between a hormone that makes your or all your tissues grow and grow and grow and grow? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Anyway, back in the lane. Let's get, let's get back in the lane. All right. So excess hormone. You can be born with it. You can have a tumor that uh, secretes excess hormone. You can introduce it exogenously, uh, or you can impair its, its breakdown or release. So as I mentioned briefly earlier, the effects of hormones are typically kind of a lo lot longer than the effects of the nervous system because they're released into the blood and they stay there until they get broken down. And the two major mechanisms we have for breaking down hormones, breaking down or re re removing them from the body, is breakdown in the liver and excretion by the kidneys into urine. Now, if one, of t one or both of those systems are not functioning, the effect is the hormones will stay in the body longer. Does that make sense? Right? So you have liver, liver disease 
or you have kidney disease, the hormones will remain in the blood where they are still able to interact with any cell that has a receptor for it as long as they still exist. So that falls in the category of too much hormone. Okay? The opposite of that is too little hormone, or effectively uh, decreased effect. So, number one, congenital deficit. Okay? So someone who is born, let's use the, uh, the um, pituitary gland example again. Someone is born with a, uh, a hyposecreting uh, uh, pituitary gland. So their pituitary gland from birth is unable to secrete adequate amounts of growth hormone. That person right, will be significantly developmentally delayed, both cognitively and physically. They'll be short, they'll be underdeveloped, those kinds of things, right? What else? Um, you can have a tumor that is a hyposecreting tumor. So the, the, again, remember that tumors can be hypersecreting tumors. But the, the way to visualize this is, let's say you have a tumor of a gland, and instead of being uh, of the same cells that that gland is made of, that's making that hormone, so it just does more of it. In this case, it's not making that hormone, it's just occupying space. And it's blocking the ability of that gland to make that hormone as it normally should. So you can have hyposecreting tumors. Does that make sense? Okay. Next, what if you have inadequate receptors? A hormone is useless if it doesn't have a receptor to, to bind with on target cells. So you can have issues where uh, you have a decreased effect of a hormone because it just has nothing to bind to. Anybody know of any examples of something that acts like that? Have you guys learned about any autoimmune disorders? Anybody know of an autoimmune disorder in the thyroid glands? Okay, there's one called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, in Hashimoto's, well, it'll be on a slide next week. Okay, in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, there is an autoimmune disorder, which means it's either a destruction or a blockage of the receptors on the thyroid gland that are supposed to be receiving the hormone from the pituitary gland that says make thyroid hormone. But if you break down those receptors, it doesn't matter how much TSH is in the blood, thyroid gland can't make thyroid hormone. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, next, antagonist hormone production is increased. So say one of these examples. Okay. Let's say you have, um, you have, uh, you're, you're making a normal amount of calcitonin, but you have a uh, hypersecreting tumor of the parathyroid gland that uh, is hypersecreting parathyroid hormone. It's going to impair the function of that antagonist hormone. It's just going to override it. Uh, alternatively, surgical removal or atrophy. So atrophy is, it's, uh, it's, is either naturally over time as you get older or due secondary to some kind of damage, say maybe radiation therapy or something like that. You can impair the function of the glands, right? Shrink it. And sometimes it's something you want to do. Right? Maybe you have a hypersecreting tumor. One of the possible fixes for that is irradiate that tumor, and you're intentionally atrophying it. Okay, so the opposite could happen where something you know a, a gland gets atrophied secondary to a number of other therapies or reasons. Um, also, if you remove the gland, so uh, let's say you have a thyroid tumor. 
Okay, you have a thyroid tumor on the right side of the thyroid gland. What are you gonna do? Take out that side of the thyroid gland, right? Surgical removal of that thyroid gland. Get the tumor out, that's appropriate treatment. Now you have half a thyroid gland. So for, typically for the remainder of your life, you will be su supplementing with exogenous thyroxine, right? Exogenous hormones to make up for that now missing gland. That makes sense? So it's post-surgical complications. Uh, last one on the list would be malnutrition. So you are just simply don't have the building blocks necessary in your diet to make these hormones, whether it's the steroid hormones or the, pro or the, uh, the protein hormones, the polypeptides. You just can't make them. Okay? So again, if you get confused with any of the disorders, go back to is this too much or too little and of what hormone. And if you have that in place, then you'll be, in, you'll be on the right track. Okay, so diagnostically, um, there's lots of ways that you can manage uh, in endocrinology. You're, you're evaluating uh, um, disorders of the, of the endocrine system. Blood tests are a good place to start. Um, there are tests that can monitor um, even small levels of hormones in the blood. Uh, same thing with urinalysis, right? So hormones will ultimately end up in the urine uh, because that's one of the two ways that we get rid of them. Uh, more complicated, but you can do stimulation or suppression tests. We won't really get into that much, but that basically means you are, um, you are intentionally administering a medication or, or, um, or a substance that's going to uh, cause one of your glands to either start increasing or decreasing its production of a hormone and monitoring whether it actually does so. Um, imaging, right? In the case of especially things like tumors, so you're going to want to image it. So it could be an ultrasound, it could be an MRI, uh, and then diagnosis of that uh, definitively is based on a biopsy. All right, treatment. So treatment is going to, of course, depend on what the cause is. Okay, but think about what the cause is, and think, go back to again the basics: too much or too little. So if you have too little of a hormone, right? What do you do about it? Somebody who is congenitally born with an inability to make sufficient amounts of growth hormone, what do you do? Administer exogenous growth hormone. Same thing for someone who is congenitally hypothyroid. We'll learn about a condition that that, uh, that, that involves next week. You administer thyroxine, exogenous thyroid hormone. Okay? What if you have someone who is one of the uh, hypers, right? So, so one of those conditions where you have too much of a particular hormone. Again, it's going to depend on the cause, right? So, so uh, what gland is it, and why is it hypersecreting? And how can we stop it from doing so? So you can either um, you can either administer a blocking medication that's going to block production of that hormone. In some example, in some cases, they do exist. Or let's say you have a, again a tumor that's hypersecreting, then you're going to or a gland that's just hypersecreting. You got to do something to impair that gland's function. So either surgical removal of part or all of it, or irradiate it to atrophy it. That makes sense? Okay, so always step back to too much or too little. Okay, let's get the basics out of the way for, for diabetes and then we'll call it a day. Okay, and this should be easy if you guys have done this before. All right, so diabetes mellitus. Oh, where does that name come from, by the way? Because we'll learn about another disorder called diabetes insipidus, and it's very much a different thing. That, what's the root word for mellitus? Mel means honey, 
for the sweetness of the urine. Somebody figured this out at some point. Okay. Uh, anyway, so the basic problem with diabetes has to do with, of course, insulin. So it's an inadequate effect of insulin in the, in the target tissue. Now, of course, you guys have learned about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, right? And you know that they're very much different problems. So in, uh, what's the difference? Type 1 is insulin-dependent. Yeah, and so somebody's insulin-dependent. What does that if you take it back a step. That's the treatment. So how, you're absolutely right, but what does that mean about how it develops? What's the basic problem in type 1 diabetes? Right. So, go ahead. Say again. Oh, like it is producing too much glucose, right? Okay. So, back it up. Back it up. Back it up. So, type 1 diabetes, that you're correct in saying that's what we call insulin dependent, as in that's how you treat it. Let's back it up to what, what's the problem? The problem is pancreas is not making insulin. Too little. Okay. Too little. Pancreas does not make sufficient insulin. Okay, and it's, somebody said auto, autoimmune over here, and you're right. Um, it's typic, most typically an autoimmune disorder that, uh, that uh, damages the beta cells of the pancreas, usually during childhood or adolescence-ish, uh, and therefore afterwards permanently that person's pancreas can't make sufficient amounts of insulin. So the treatment is they introduce exogenous insulin periprandially. What does that word mean? Peri means around. Prandial means meal time all right around meal time <laughs> so that's type 1 type 2 is still an issue of uh, of inadequate effect of insulin okay but this is obviously a different problem someone with type 2 diabetes can their pancreas make insulin yes, yes it can okay but it doesn't work right okay it's an issue of insulin resistance Okay, so insulin is not functioning at the receptor at the target cells that it's supposed to. And it's a complicated discussion as to how exactly that happens, but that's the point. Okay? Major difference between type 1 and type 2. Regardless, somebody with either or can have alterations in their metabolism or in, in, their, in their metabolism of your macronutrients. Right? We're talking about primarily glucose here. So you need, in the majority of tissues of the body, you require the presence of insulin to push glucose from the blood into those cells. And if that doesn't happen, those cells still need to find a way to generate energy. And they will often do so with alternate means. So they'll break down fats, so they'll break down proteins, and they'll do whatever they have to do to, to meet their energy requirements. Okay, so again, type one, <laughs> most typically autoimmune, comes on during childhood or adolescence, uh, it uh, damages the beta cells of the pancreas, or the endocrine function of the pancreas, uh, and thereafter they have a permanent inability to produce insulin. Okay, um, there are, as with all all autoimmune disorders, excuse me, there are genetic links. There is no one gene that is heritable generation to generation that dictates that you are definitely going to get diabetes, but there are, it's, these are the kinds of disorders that are what we call familial. So they run, in, they run in gene pools, they run in families, which implies strongly that there are genetic links, right? As a side note, you should know, since we're talking about autoimmune and there's a bunch of other ones related to endocrine, because of the nature of how autoimmune disorders work, 
somebody who has one autoimmune disorder is significantly more likely to develop another because the function of, of autoimmune disorders is effectively the same, right? It's the immune system has misinterpreted self versus non-self antigens and is attacking cells of your, of your own body and causing damage, right? The only difference between the various autoimmune disorders is what cells are being attacked, right? Is it, uh, is it uh, diabetes with the beta cells of the pancreas? Is it rheumatoid arthritis where you have the synovial lining of the, of the joints? Is it Hashimoto's where it's damaging parts of the thyroid? Is it lupus where it can damage just about everything? It entirely depends on location. Okay, <laughs> and then type two. So type two is what we call our uh, non-insulin dependent diabetes. Um, this is our insulin resistance. Okay, so there's a decreased effect of insulin at the target tissue um, for various reasons we'll get into next week. But the person can make insulin in the pancreas, but it's just no longer effective at the, uh, at the cells. All right, so these patients, the most typical, well, in the perfect worlds, what is the best long-term management of type 2 diabetes? Diet and exercise. All right, so diet and exercise. And we'll talk about that more again next week. Uh, practically, in the, in, the, in the meantime, while this person is managing diabetes and you don't want to have the negative effects of diabetes, which are substantial, um, the per is typically going to be on oral hypoglycemic meds. So oral medications that decrease the blood levels of glucose. Because as we'll see next week, chronically elevated blood glucose levels <coughs> cause a substantial amount of problems to the blood vessels. Okay? Um, can insulin, sorry, this is, this, so type 2 is called non-insulin dependent diabetes, right? Do you ever use insulin in treatment of type 2 diabetes? Yes. Yes. With significant poorly managed cases, especially the longer they go on, at some point it can become... Uh, the blood glucose can remain elevated even with the oral hypoglycemics and you need routine administration of insulin to manage it. Okay? This is the kind that it doesn't develop overnight, it happens slowly. Uh, it's got a significant association with, with obesity. Um, obesity, so I mean, obesity is a big topic for another time. Uh, obesity is usually related to the same things that cause this. Okay? It's inadequate exercise, and it's, it, it's an alteration in diet. Uh, and in our societies, that often means way too, much, uh, way too much carbohydrates and simple sugars, which can lead to insulin resistance. But you should note that obesity by itself, independent of what the person is doing diet and exercise-wise, is a, no, it's, it's a risk factor for developing uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Okay, so independent of, of how that person got to that point of being obese, the obesity by itself creates a risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes. And that is part of the relationship with something called metabolic syndrome, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, and uh, we'll leave it at that. All right. I'll see you next week. <laughs>